week ago they called me they said they have no more vaccine we don't have enough they don't have any more uh, shots it will be months before everyone who wants a vaccine will be able to get one uh, it's a matter of life and death what does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news stories the debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one conversation with our reporters every week right here right now the debrief Welcome into The Debrief. I'm your host, Adam Cooperstein, in for David Ushery. There is a race in America right now, a race to get enough people vaccinated that we can return to some sense of normalcy in our lives. And while it's still early in the race, America is falling behind, which is especially troubling as people continue to die every day and as new, more contagious variants of the virus are now spreading on U.S. soil. The good news is, People are eager to get the vaccine, but the demand is far higher than the supply. And that's why getting a vaccine appointment in some cases has been like trying to score tickets to see Beyonce. It can take hours of refreshing websites or waiting in long lines out in the cold. And it's not just the supply that's scarce. Reliable information for the states distributing the vaccine has been hard to come by. Today on The Debrief, we're going to talk to an expert to sort through the problems and ask an obvious question with an elusive answer. What's stopping the vaccine makers from making more now? But first, here's News 4's Chris Glorioso on the vaccine bottleneck. Right now, I want to level with the public that we are facing two constraining factors. White House Senior Advisor Andy Slavitt acknowledging there is not enough vaccine supply and telling most Americans they're going to have to wait, not days or weeks. It will be months before everyone who wants a vaccine will be able to get one. Much of this first briefing by President Biden's coronavirus task force focused on what can be done to speed up vaccine production. According to federal data, Pfizer has sent the U.S. an average of 5.2 million doses per week, Moderna about 6.5 million per week. At that pace, the companies will fall 19 million doses short of their original projection, 200 million by March 31st. We don't have enough. But the companies have said they'll not only meet the 200 million dose mark by the spring, they'll exceed it. And the Biden team now underscoring several measures to boost vaccine supply in the next three weeks, including an immediate release of 16 percent more doses to the states and a broad effort to squeeze more out of each Pfizer shipment. We're going to make sure that we get six doses out of Pfizer's vials everywhere in America because that's the potential. To extract the extra doses, the Biden team will invoke the Defense Production Act to produce more specialized syringes. The emergency law may even be used to force other pharma companies to convert their factories to vaccine production. Meanwhile, the nation's new CDC director urging more funding for genomic testing to detect new virus mutations. And we really need to be have access to those resources to do the amount of sequencing and surveillance that we need. And now let's welcome in Dr. Eric Schneider. He is the Senior Vice President, Policy and Research at Commonwealth Fund. And Dr. Schneider, we're so thankful to add your expertise to this conversation because it is so critical. And, and, and when we're talking about a supply and distribution of the vaccine, there have been so many challenges. At this point in the game, what do you think has been the biggest issue 
when it comes to this supply chain, this stream of getting the vaccine to the public? Well, Adam, thanks again for having me here today. I'm glad to be with you. Probably the the biggest challenge is, is actually the supply right now. It's actually the manufacturing capacity, which is not only able to generate a limited number of doses at this point. This is a wholly new vaccine. We're, it's remarkable that we've reached this point so quickly where we have effective vaccines. But the, the big challenge is actually ramping up the production of vaccines. And as we're seeing over the last month, there's a second challenge around states getting organized to deliver the vaccinations once the vaccine arrives. And on that note, has there been a noticeable change? We've had a change of administration. The Biden administration has now taken over overseeing this vaccine rollout. Has there already been any sort of noticeable change when it comes to how the federal, the national strategy for this is going to work? Well, I think two things are happening. One is that the advanced planning is happening. What we have learned is that there was very little planning for beyond the development and delivery of the vaccines. Uh, to deal with the vaccination problem. Uh, but we're also seeing a ramp up in the vaccination. You know, we were at, I think, over the first month or so, o- only reached a million doses a day once. And now we're consistently getting over a million doses a day out to, to vaccinate people. That will increase over time. Right now, it's limited by the bottleneck of uh, adequate supply from manufacturers. Okay, let's talk about that bottleneck for a moment, Dr. Schneider, because in New York City, for instance, Mayor de Blasio has said, we are capable now. We have the facilities, the capability of doing 500,000 vaccinations in a week. And yet there isn't even close to that amount of supply coming to New York State. Forget New York City. So what what. And, and, you know, the Biden administration says, OK, we're going to increase by 16 percent. 16 percent isn't enough where they're going to be able to vaccinate at the rate of speed that they want to. So you said supply is the biggest issue. Is there any anticipation of supply increasing? We're going to be in a, a situation of scarcity probably for another month or two. The, the one game changer would be if the J&J or other uh, vaccines come online because that will markedly expand production capacity. And also those are single dose vaccines, which means that the logistics and shipping and will be easier. Also, they don't require the same low temperatures, uh, which will make it easier to get those out to rural areas and other places. As far as the supply goes, one of the questions that I've been wondering for a while, and I understand why the public would think this too, is, well, hey, why don't we just scale up production? Let's make more. It's a wartime scenario. Pfizer, Moderna, let's go. Let's help. The Defense Production Act, can that do anything? What are the logistical challenges of just simply ramping up production? There are several logistical challenges. I mean, just building new production facilities takes time. Borrowing other companies' production facilities could be done, but they have their other productions uh, of drugs and supplies going. We're also in a situation where the, the global supply chains are all being sort of maxed out. So there are companies that are scaling up that we normally might rely on in this country, in India, for example, and we can't really use their production capacity because they're producing vaccine for their own citizens. So there, there are just some really hard constraints around. It's not even a matter of you could spend more money and get, get out of this. It's just the building of facilities, the building of production lines, the ensuring that they're safe will take time. And, and money is not the constraint. Money can't be an issue when we're talking about the biggest crisis that we're facing and the vaccine being a solution. Uh, it, it, I mean, just to make it clear, it's not about money now. It is not about money. I mean, the vaccine's actually been purchased. Uh, There's enough vaccine now under contract to vaccinate the entire U.S. public. It's really a question of 
um, how, how quickly they can ramp up. There might be some things to do around the edges around uh, increasing the input supply. You know, it takes glass vials and a whole bunch of other supplies. Ramping up the production of those supplies uh, might help to get, you know, the, the, the vaccine bottled and packaged and so it can be shipped. But really, money is not the, the issue at this point. Is that where the Defense Production Act could be useful or is it somewhere else? The Defense Production Act is actually most useful in uh, these sorts of shortage situations where one could sort of find suppliers uh, who are not focused on making these products right now, but could be re- could be diverted to making uh, packages, bottles, uh, metal products, uh, solutions uh, that go into the manufacture of the vaccine. That's the DPA, what the DPA is especially uh, useful for. Now, because of this supply shortage we're talking about, one of the things that we've seen happen is this difficulty for the public to schedule appointments, or if they do get an appointment, sometimes those appointments are rescheduled or even canceled. Um, how, how difficult has it been from the state's perspective to make these appointments when for a long time they have not known how much supply is coming in? Yeah, it's almost, uh, it's it's hard to imagine the position where we put the states in. That There were promises made about quantities of vaccine that didn't materialize. Uh, states planned around those estimates. Uh, many states are prepared to go beyond what supply they have. Uh, but then in anticipation that there would be this supply, they notified the eligible populations. They set up vaccination clinics and centers and, um, and scheduled appointments. And now a lot of those appointments are being canceled because it turned out that the, the promised amounts weren't arriving. The other thing we're seeing, I think, in the transition to new administration is much more transparency about what is the actual supply of vaccine, when will it arrive, so that states can plan and, and clinical operations can plan for that. And then the public will have a much clearer view of uh, when their appointment might happen. The other thing I'd say is we're seeing already some states have gotten better at this than others. States like the Dakotas, West Virginia, Oregon, uh, where they've centralized the uh, uh, capacity to make appointments and deliver vaccine and made it much simpler for the, uh, the consumer to sort of figure out where they are in, in the line. Dr. Schneider, you mentioned some of the states that have done well when it comes to the vaccine rollout, or at least better than others. And and you're talking about simplifying things, but a lot of those states you mentioned are some of the smaller populations in the United States. Can the larger states like New York, Florida, California follow that same model or would it not apply with just the larger scale? Well, they have two, two a couple of issues. One is that um, they are larger. They're larger populations. There are more players in the mix. Uh, you've got hospitals, clinics, federally qualified health centers. They're standing up max vaccination sites and stadiums and convention centers. Those larger states have been more, I think, a little more sensitive to uh, equity concerns and, and trying to follow the protocol to get the most high, the, those at highest risk vaccinated uh, early. And that's meant they've held back some vaccine in order to make sure they were achieving that equity goal. So I think the, the it's a more complicated process for large states, but some of the large states are stepping up by you know, it just takes a lot more coordination and a lot more involvement from uh, the, the hospital systems, the clinic systems. California, for example, I think has just decided that Blue, Blue Shield of California will uh, take over the organizing and distribution of vaccine across California. Kaiser Permanente is a large system with millions of members. Uh, they're managing part of the vaccination challenge. But another thing that every state needs is data, the data to track and, and uh, uh, track vaccination and understand who's getting vaccinated when. Our underinvestment in public health uh, data infrastructure is, is uh, hampering those efforts. 
Let's talk about that equity issue for a moment, because I find it fascinating that it certainly has been top of mind here in New York. Uh, everyone, I think, wants things to be fair. But the prioritization process uh, seems to have made things more complicated. How is that factored in, in your mind, to some of the issues we're seeing around the country? I think it's been difficult to the prioritization uh, process is, is uh, for fair and equitable allocation to the highest risk populations first. But some of those categories can be quite large. So people with uh, obesity, for example, if they're added as a category uh, of risk to jump the line, that's, a, that's millions of people. And so um, I think the, the biggest challenge related to um, fair allocation has been to, that, that many states don't have easy ways to identify who is at highest risk. So uh, healthcare workers relatively easy to identify. People living in long-term care facilities or staff working in those facilities, relatively easy to identify. But once we get to the categories like essential workers and people with chronic conditions, we don't have great data systems to identify those folks, which is why many states are starting to fall back to age criteria. You know, Massachusetts has just begun to open it up to people over 75, for example. Um, That's not a perfect or ideal uh, approach, but it's simpler and it's uh, also easier for people to understand. We recently did a report on the 1947 smallpox outbreak in New York City. We went back and looked at how New York City vaccinated 6 million people in a month, a month, 6 million. And with all the resources we have and the modern technology we have, help me understand what's different about the situation now where we can't even get close to that figure. Yeah, I, I think that's a great example of how, that, how, how this can be done uh, effectively. Uh, and there are two issues, I think, that are plaguing us now. We actually invest a lot less in public health infrastructure and disease surveillance than we did uh, back at that time. So we don't have the, the kind of infrastructure. A second issue is the political, uh, the politicization of public health, uh, which is extremely unfortunate and poorly timed. Because, uh, you know, we've got problems getting people to adhere to masks and distancing and and, uh, gathering restrictions. There's a lot of disinformation around vaccines. There's a lot of mistrust that I think is, you know, it's not as big an issue right now, but it will become a big issue as the um, uh, vaccination expands. And we're trying to reach people who may be very hesitant or even uh, against getting vaccinated. If we can't get a sufficient number of people vaccinated, actually, a lot of these efforts could be go, uh, could go to waste. So I think those are the, those are probably the biggest differences. It's uh, uh, and also New York was one city. I mean that that's that, that the other example here is we're trying to do New York on multiple scale, larger than one city. It's actually all the cities and our counties and states of the United States. What do you think the message should be right now to people in this community and all over America who are eager to get vaccinated but are having trouble? scheduling an appointment and are getting frustrated? I think expectations have gotten overheated. Uh, And I know people are fatigued, they're tired, they want to get the vaccine, uh, many of them, not all. But we need an orderly process to get there. We didn't have the kind of planning for this vaccine rollout that really should have started even a year ago. We've always known that if a pandemic arrived, we were going to need mass vaccination. Other countries have had mass vaccination campaigns in the recent past. It can be done. Uh, we just didn't have the level of planning that we needed prior to starting the rollout. I know now that people uh, are working, especially in the administration, but also in the states, on when we get to the abundance, when supply is no longer the issue, what is the uh, process that we're going to use to vaccinate as many Americans as 
as we can as quickly as we can. Yeah, and hopefully once that's the case, because for now, demand is outpacing supply, clearly. But once we get to that point, uh, we would hope that things would run smoother and, and some time will pass. Is your expectation that, you know, for, for healthy Americans who want the vaccine, who are under age 65, that, that this could be the end of the summer or the fall? What's your expectation? Because I, I know we're hearing some different promises from different folks in leadership, but what's a realistic expectation? I would imagine that uh, people under 65 without other health risks uh, will be at least starting to get vaccinated in the springtime, late spring, May, June. It really, so much is contingent on how easily the supply can be expanded, whether the J&J vaccine and other vaccines uh, finish their clinical trials and are authorized. That's that, you know, the timing of that will have a huge impact on the supply. But once the supply is there, I think the bigger challenge we're going to face is around is around uh, hesitancy and uh, uh, potentially large numbers of people who may not even want to be vaccinated. As long as there are unvaccinated people, just as with the measles or other uh, uh, infectious diseases, if there are susceptible people in the population, the virus won't go away. Dr. Schneider, thank you so much for the time. It's been really, really uh, helpful to speak with you about this crucial topic. Thank you. Delighted to be with you. Thanks so much. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. And thanks to our production team, Melissa Mack, Darren Price, and Ben Berkowitz. I'm your host, Adam Cooperstein, in for David Ushery. We'll check back with you next time on The Debrief.